Welcome to Reimagine the Contact Center. My guest today is our very own Maria Satrowski, Head of Creative Solutions at Balto. It's Maria. Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm good, Maria. How are you doing? I'm doing absolutely great. Good. Well, I am so glad you're here today. I think that the research that you've done is truly incredible. The topic is super interesting. And the role that you've played at Balto in the company in general is something that is unique. And you know, I wrote a LinkedIn post about that, about specifically creative solutions, probably maybe six months ago. And it kind of blew up and everyone was like, oh my God, I love this function. I love this idea. So I thought maybe we could start off by telling a little bit about you know, what you do at Creative Solutions at Balto that we can get into the heart of the research. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for that intro. And uh, yeah, what, what we do it with Creative Solutions at Balto is actually super exciting and definitely one of the most exciting things I've done in my career so far. So Creative Solutions is responsible for two different things at Balto. The first thing we're responsible for is making sure that Balto is able to move as quickly as possible. And that can take every single form that you could possibly imagine, removing roadblocks, setting up new processes, uh, introducing new tools, doing research, projects like this, anything that you can think of that, that can make the company go faster is what we're excited to work on. And the second thing we do is really make sure that as we've grown and scaled, all of the Baltonians are able to work on a reasonable amount of, have a reasonable workload and that they have the help that they need and the resources they need to be able to do that. Maria, it's, it's so fascinating because I think that as we were growing the startup, you know, we noticed that very common scenario where someone is crushing it, crushing it, crushing it. So then the team gives them more work and more work and more work. And then after a certain point, the person feels like burnt out and they start to crash and burn. And we you know, thought, is there like a safety net we can give people? So you know, if they have accidentally taken on more work than they can handle, they can pull a, push a giant red button and you know, help drops out of the sky and you know, clears up their plate and helps make their life a little bit easier. Absolutely. And I think a unique thing happens there too, where it's not only the people who are, do have that extra burden, but putting the barrier in place to make sure that they don't receive any more. When you have people who are able to help out and do their workload even before it would get to them is another thing that we're able to help with a lot. Can you talk about that for a second? Like, how do you guys actually do that? Yeah. So I think a, a big question we had to answer at the very beginning was figuring out, do we want to try to duplicate, have like duplicative skill sets that from other departments on the creative solutions team? And why would we not just immediately put those skill sets in that department? And what we found is that when you have those people who are overworked and overburdened, the only thing you really can do is have another person on the back burner ready to take over some of those, some of those tasks. And when you don't have that skill set readily available, there's not much you can do other than offer moral and moral support and emotional support for them, which isn't going to do much, as many of us know when we've been in those situations. Yeah, well, Maria, now you kind of inspired me to want to open up like the Balto counseling department. <laughs> and, and, and you guys I think we're good for right counseling. now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah ho- hopefully, hopefully we'll never need it. But what a good you know, transition into, well, how do we arrive at producing this truly unique, incredible piece of research that, that you guys produced? So can you talk a little bit about you know, why you guys took on the project that you took? And then, you know, of course, we'll let everyone know what the actual research is. 
When we took on this project, it was really to focus on understanding where managers were were spending their time when they were talking about coaching versus recoaching and how they spent, like how many times it actually takes them to coach an agent before those skills are applied on the phone. And a big piece of any type of research that we do like this at Baltos, we wanted to make sure that it was to the greatest extent possible unbiased. We wanted to actually understand what was going on regardless of of what that meant for us. And so we ended up partnering with a company called Sentiment to help us run that research, to review our findings, to review the questions and make sure that, that we were really getting a good lay of the landscape there. It's funny. It's so tempting to just be like, we're going to do our next research project with a LinkedIn poll <laughs> and then we'll publish about it. Yeah, not not quite the right approach that we wanted to use here. <laughs> cool. So then, you know, what was the big research question you guys were trying to answer and, and what is the methodology? Who are the people that you talked to and what sort of questions did you ask? How did you ask it kind of what's the background of the research, if you will? Yeah. So we wanted to answer the question of how much time was spent coaching versus recoaching. And we wanted to do it with contact center managers. And we defined those contact center managers as people whose primary job was to directly manage the contact center agents that were making or receiving phone calls. Um, And we wanted to be able to tie this back to a study that we had done actually last year around the agents. And why the agents were making mistakes on the phone. And so we started last year with doing that research with over a thousand agents. We wanted to repeat that again this year with about 500 of those managers that would be managing those types of agents. Super cool. When you talk about coaching versus recoaching, I think that's a pretty novel concept. So you know, how did you guys come up with that concept of coaching versus recoaching and what exactly does it mean? Yeah, so we came up with that after working with actually a a bunch of the leadership at Balto, people like you, people like Jeff, our head of product, also hearing from our customers what they were working with with coaching. And after hearing what people were saying for long enough, we started realizing, I'm sure you, you were one of the ones who really drove this point home, was that people are coaching their agents over and over and over again. And so that's how the the re-coaching concept really came about is my understanding. Sure. So then, you know, how would you define re-coaching versus coaching? Yeah. So anytime you have to coach someone a second time on the exact same skill. Got it. Yep. So then, you know, we'd love to hear a little bit about like the results of the survey. So what did it look like when you asked people, how much time are you spending coaching versus re-coaching? That was actually really interesting. And the, even in my opinion, the numbers were higher than I expected. What we found is age or managers reported having to coach agents at least four times on average before they were actually going to implement a skill. So when you break that down, 25% of their time is spent on that initial coaching session. The next three are spent re-coaching that same skill. Wow. And did that vary by use case or by the size of the contact center? Or you know, was that 25, 75% split pretty consistent? It was not consistent. And when we saw that very prominently when we broke it down by the size of contact center. So at the smallest size, we saw about 3.5 times what it took to get to the skill that slowly grew on the size of the contact center. So very small, we defined as one to 50 agents. After that, it grew in the small and mid-size. And then by the time you got to large contact centers, which we defined as just over 500 agents, we were resting at over five times 
So as these contact centers are growing in size, they're spending more and more time re-coaching their agents on the same skills. So you're saying that for a large contact center, 500 agents or more, you have to coach an additional 1.5 times, five versus 3.5 on average before the agent gets the skill compared to a you know team that's a contact center of 50 agents or fewer. Absolutely. And the other interesting thing we saw with the scaling piece is that the time that they're spending to prepare for those coaching sessions is also going up. So not only are they taking more time to actually coach the agent for, to learn these skills, they're spending more time preparing for these coaching sessions that are ultimately less effective. They're spending more time preparing, more time coaching, but also that's less effective and they're actually spending more time re-coaching. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I have a lot of ideas, uh, none of which we have tested. So I'll give that disclaimer, but I'm sure you have a few to add. But I think with the size of, as you grow with the size of the contact center, I think there's a few different things at play. One, I think the scale itself, we've been experiencing this with Balto too, as we've scaled, like the types of interactions that, that people are able to have and the, as the team grows, there are very different conversations when you're talking with a team of two or three people than when you're talking with a team of 20, 30, 40, 50 agents. I think that's has a huge role here in the level of personalization you're able to give. I think it also, we also see a shift in people's ability to actually walk along the, around the floor and listen to calls. Instead, we also saw an uptick in the use of call recordings, which ended up actually also leading to less effective sessions. So I think there's in different scenarios, you're pulling out and nitpicking certain things. And that's just the way things are happening at scale and it's not working. Yeah. That made me think of just a million different hypotheses for why this might be. I'd be super interested to hear, and I don't know if you guys researched this or whether it'd be a a future report. What was the likeliness that a contact center was remote in each of those categories? Zero to 50, 50 to whatever, 500 over. Like what's the, the likeliness that they were remote versus on site? I wonder if that has a piece to do with it. And then also, what was the agent to manager ratio in each of those? I wonder if you know you're in a small contact center and imagine that you you know because if it's under fifty, that includes everything from zero all the way to ten, right? So mm-hmm. if you're zero to ten, you must have a you know rep to manager ratio of less than ten. So I can imagine, and then you know when you get to probably the 15 mark or maybe 20 mark, if you're really pushing it, that they make a, a second hire. And you can even imagine that when you get to 50, do you have two people each managing 25 agents at that point? Probably not. You probably have three people each managing 16 agents, which makes, you know, brings down you know, the ratio a little bit. So I could imagine that the agent to manager ratio plays a big role there too. And then also I would just say probably the ability to disseminate knowledge and standards to a broader audience. Like it's super interesting and you use Balto as an example, you know, we're like a 120 people now or so, something like that. And I've noticed how much harder it is to communicate to the organization, you know, here is what we care about. Here is how we do business. Here is what excellent looks like versus good versus great versus not so good. Communicating that to a broad audience is harder because you don't have that one-on-one interaction to support it. You can't share your standards with stories as much or quick lessons or working on projects. You have to share it as like these big, bold statements. 
Um, it's hard enough to you know share those standards at scale, and then also to reinforce and communicate those standards and check up on them. I imagine is also difficult at scale. So you know if you're a 500 you know agent contact center, uh, the number of times that you're interacting with the executive level who is responsible for creating those standards and responsible for you know breathing the life into the culture of the organization is much 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 less than if you have a zero to fifty agent contact center and you're passing by the the owner's office every day. I imagine some of those things could play a role, but that's just like what came off the top of my head based on what I heard you say, Maria. Yeah, I, you also made me think of too, like, and it's something that we've seen at Balta as we've scaled, that the scope of job responsibilities is very different for people when you start at in that one to 50 range, and then you get into that 50 to 250 range. And it just keeps like the job responsibility starts shrinking. And so for lack of a better word, there's siloed knowledge that starts to happen. And so you might have start having groups solely focused on agent education. And then their managers might be different. Their direct line managers, there might be a QA department that comes into play as you get larger and larger. So the areas where that are like looking into the agent coaching realm start growing. And I just wonder if you start getting more and more voices there and uh, maybe they're coaching on different, like fundamentally different things when you get to, to that level of scale. I think it's a great point. I also wonder how the training might differ. Uh, last week, we interviewed a contact center agent on the podcast, and uh, he was at a contact center that you know, falls in that large category, the 500 plus. And he was talking about how great the training is and um, you know how thorough it was. And I think that you know, you'd certainly have an advantage in the larger organization is that your training is like rigorous and methodical and less, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, cowboyish. But I can also imagine at the same time that you're relying on training classes of people that, you know, may or may not learn differently or, you know, may not have the chance to answer or ask as many questions. And I can also imagine that if you're hiring 20 agents at a time versus five agents at a time, your talent pool, or rather the, the people who you bring in the organization, um, you might have to sacrifice the average quality of the agent versus if you're hiring just one, and that's your one agent hire this quarter, you're going to make sure that they're excellent. But if you're hiring 20, you might kind of let the law of large numbers dictate that. So I could actually imagine that part of the difference is the actual skill of the agents at larger contact centers. That's really true. And I think the survey that we did last year with the agents actually lines up with what you just said with the training piece specifically. They did, they were finding with the larger contact centers that the training was more helpful as the organization grew. What was very interesting though is we saw a massive drop-off when they hit the enterprise contact space at about over a thousand agents. The, actually for some reason across the board, and we looked at this over and over again, we did have a lot of responses in all categories. There was a huge drop off in education as soon as you hit the enterprise space. So it was better, 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 and then drop off. And in most cases, the enterprise space was actually performing worse than the mid-sized contact centers at about 200 agents. Wow. Wow. Hmm. So it seems like there's almost like a uh, the drop-off may signal like some sort of limit to scale or, you know, like uh, how you get increasing efficiencies at scale or improvement at scale. And there, it signals that there may be some sort of limit where when you get past a certain point, scale becomes more of a burden than it does a help. 
Yeah. Either a limit or something we just haven't figured out yet. I mean, mm. there, there very well could be a solution for it. I, we just, I don't know that uh, we found a good way to scale it yet. So then, uh, Maria, one of the other things you mentioned was managers prepping for sessions and how they spend more time prepping, but it's less effective. What are the, first of all, you know, how are they coaching? What are they actually doing to coach? And what did the preparation look like? And maybe just broadly or across each segment, I don't know, however you want to slice it up. One of the questions we did ask them was how they're like, what are they doing to prepare for these coaching sessions and how are they identifying these opportunities? And the top three ways that we identified was the first one was call recordings. And this one was mentioned over 45% of the time, almost uh, like it was by far the loudest voice we saw was call recordings. The second one we saw was only at 21%. We saw walking the floor, which I imagined had we done this survey two years ago, it would have been a very different set of responses, but it probably isn't practical for a lot of these organizations anymore, especially if they haven't gone back yet to the office to be walking the floor and being using that as a way to identify coaching opportunities for their agents. And then the third way was actually using scorecards. One of the interesting things too, having done the agent survey last year, two of those three call recordings and scorecards are two of the lowest, like the least helpful training tools that the agents reported in the whole list of tools that we gave them. So, and call recordings, especially were were very low from the agent perspective. And it was just very interesting that to see that disconnect. And I don't know if the disconnect is due to, I mean, it's very possible that agents human nature is maybe like, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't need coaching. And so whatever the most popular tools are that the managers are using, that's what they're going to reject. I don't know. But it, it is interesting that we see a very odd connection there. That is so interesting. So you're saying that the manager's preferred tools, call recording and QA scorecards, were the agent's least preferred tools in how they said they learn best. Yeah, not only least preferred, but ranked as the least helpful. It's funny. I think that you kind of brought up that there may be two interpretations to that. One is that the agent is right and they're like illuminating a truth and in fact, that is the least helpful. And the other might be that coaching requires some form of confrontation. So instead of like least helpful, they might be really saying most confrontational. And the ones they feel like are just putting your score right in your face or putting your problems right in your face are the call recording and, and the QA scorecard. Exactly. So then one of the things that makes me wonder is when managers are using the call recordings for coaching, what sort of activities are they doing? Is it just a very basic listen to the call recording, find the coaching thing, bring the agent in their office, or you know, how are they working that process exactly? Yeah. So we saw a big mix in responses there. So we saw people using call recording software that would actually be analyzing the post-call side. So they would actually be getting like have things already analyzed and be going through actually what they deemed the worst calls, which was interesting. So they, we saw that we saw just literally listening for hours and hours and hours of call recordings. That was many of the answers. And then a lot of just in between those two extremes, either listening to just raw call recordings or having some kind of an app analysis already done and looking at it that way. The other thing that we saw with QA scorecard specifically was a lot of listed QA scorecard with the caveat of like always grabbing it as soon as it came from their QA department. 
And like, we actually did see legitimate complaints all through those responses around the time it took to get those back. Really? Legitimate complaints is in the amount of time that that elapsed between the call and the QA department grading it? Yep, exactly. And a lot of people actually listed a primary way as call recordings with QA coming in second, um, mostly for that reason. Super interesting. I totally get that. I think it's almost like a let bygones be bygones thing. It is very hard to say, hey, remember that thing you did three weeks ago? (laughs) Like no matter... Like imagine just managing someone, you know, they have skills and strengths and weaknesses, and you're trying to pull out an example that happened a while ago. It can feel like a little bit, it's not, but a little bit resentful, like, oh, you're still holding on to that (laughs) versus if it happens like today, it feels a little bit more like proactive. Yeah. And then if you think about how they're coaching and the time it's taking in between, it doesn't surprise me that it's taking a certain number of weeks or a certain number of coaching sessions to get to have a skill implemented because it's tough to actually see the data come in quickly enough to be able to coach effectively the next time around. Yeah. Maria, you mentioned that they spend hours and hours and hours listening to call recordings. Were you guys able to quantify that in some way? Specifically on call recordings, not quite, but we were able to talk to them about the number of hours of preparation and actually. You know what? I take that back. I think we did get hours of call recordings. I'm looking at it now. Yes. So we did get hours of call recordings and we were able to quantify it to weekly. The people who spent up to an hour listening to call recordings found that their agents were implementing the skill faster than who were spending more time listening to call recordings. Really? So you're saying that people who spent, and when I heard up to an hour, I'm kind of interpreting that as like less than an hour. People who spent less than an hour a week of listening to call recordings said that agents got the skill that they were trying to coach on faster than the people who listen to call recordings more? Yes. So if they spent less than an hour listening to call recordings, their agents got it in about 3.4 sessions. Between one and two hours, that number jumped to 4.4 sessions. So you added an entire session of coaching before the agent got it. And if you spent over three hours listening to call recordings, it got even slightly more worse, 4.5 coaching sessions. Wow. I'm trying to figure out why that might be. And the only, I can think of maybe two reasons. One is, is systemic, right? Which is that, you know, perhaps if you have a culture where manager's primary role is listening to call recordings, then that culture essentially turns coaching into like a coaching factory, right? Where it's like I spend a million hours a week uh, listening to call recordings and then the other half a million coaching. I could imagine that being the issue. It, it almost becoming rote. I could also imagine that folks who spend less than an hour a week, when the agent gets coached, it's like their shiny golden moment. It's like, oh my God, I haven't gotten coached in the entire month. This is my one coaching session. My manager never coaches me. So whatever they say, I'm going to implement the crap out of this thing. I could imagine both of those being causes. Do you see one of those being more valid than the other? Or do you think there's something else at play? I think there's a few different things at play. And I, I don't know how this factors into it directly, but I thought it was really interesting when we looked at this data compared to even their enjoyment of training and the validation that managers feel. And I think that touches on what you were kind of just describing. What we found was that when we asked them to rate their job satisfaction on a scale of one to five, 
their job satisfaction was the highest, the more they listened to call recordings. Like it was at 4.3, an average of 4.3 for people who listen to call recordings for more than three hours a week. And it was at 3.7 for people who listened for less than an hour. So I think there's some piece of just human manager validation going on there that it's more defined. Their role is more defined. They're able to listen to a call recording, identify areas for improvement and communicate those areas for improvement. I think that touches on a bit of what you were describing. And it was really interesting just to see that they enjoy listening to call recordings (laughs) or there may be another factor at play there as well, but like there's something there that was very unique. Yeah. There's just a correlation that says, if you are someone who listens to more call recordings, you are likely to be happier. Exactly. And there's definitely, I'm sure many other factors at play, but there may be just something about the nature of the role and, and the ability to find things like that is just validating. It seems like maybe in that case, my premise of coaching factory was true, but my interpretation was off. Like the premise that Yep. It's a coaching factory. This is like a very regimented part of your role. You do a bunch of listen to call recordings and they do a bunch of coaching. It seems like that was potentially supported by the data that you found. But the opposite implication was true is that it's like a happy coaching factory and that people, <laughs> that people like you know having some sort of structure in their roles. So I could imagine that that's actually a great point. If you're not listening to a lot of call recordings and you do just like an hour a week, then maybe you feel a little bit more lost in the rest of your role. So then what did prep time look like? Uh, How much time are people preparing for coaching versus actually doing coaching? Yeah. So people are spending a lot of time preparing for coaching sessions. And that did, we did see that get worse with scale, which surprised me personally, because I would have expected with scale for things to actually to have less time available to be spent preparing for coaching sessions. But I think in some ways, maybe the nature of the coaching sessions changed with scale. So either way, they were spending more time preparing for sessions and more time in the sessions. So what we found with that is the time spent preparing for coaching sessions in a smaller organization was about 1.2 hours. In the larger organizations, we were seeing 1.7 or 1.6 hours. So that's 1.2 hours in preparation time per session of coaching. Mm -hmm. And then how much time was actually spent coaching in that smaller organization? So it's like 1.2 hours prepare and then how many hours of actual coaching? Uh, We saw 32 minutes. So when we broke it down 72 minutes to 32 minutes, it was a ratio of about 2.25. So you're saying that it was 2.25 minutes or hours of coaching per or or, uh, hours of prep. 2.25 hours of prep per hour of coaching? Yes. Hmm. That is surprising. And maybe it's like the uh, sharpen your axe phenomenon. You know, whatever Abe Lincoln said, like I'd rather if I have four hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend three of them sharpening my axe and one doing the cutting or something like that. So I can imagine maybe that's a play. But also, what are they doing in that 1.2 hours? And, you know, that's 70 minutes. 70 minutes of prepping for coaching that that's a ton of time. And then to actually, I can see why 32 minutes makes sense, you know, because you have a half hour coaching session, then you're two minutes late to the next one. <laughs> so that, that seems to make sense, but what the heck are they doing in the 1.2 hours? You think? 
You know, I think it really varied. And that's where when we asked them the question of walking the floor, listening to call recording scorecards, I think those three were the ones that came up the highest. And I imagine that's what they're doing in the time just spent preparing. But it was really interesting to see how just how much time went into those coaching sessions. Yeah, I will say when you get to the 1.7 hours, there's just absolutely no way that that's optimal or efficient. Like there is no possible way on earth that that's nearly two hours that you could spend nearly two hours, a quarter of your workday on preparing for a single coaching session and have that yield the biggest ROI for your company. Like there has to be an 80-20 there. We're in one fifth of that time and not 1.7 hours or two hours, but you know, cut that in, in five. So we'll say uh, 25 minutes. There has to be a way that in 20 or 25 minutes, you can do the preparation and get 80% of the result that previously would have taken you nearly two hours to do. Right. And I, I thought it was really unique too, to see that number ticking up with the larger organizations. Cause I imagine the resources, the tools, the software available in those companies is more widespread there. I mean, those tools are, are put there to make them more efficient to your point to not have to spend 1.7 hours, 1.6 hours on preparing for coaching sessions. And it makes me wonder what's going on in, I mean, I know I personally from experience have gotten lost in the data of some of these, of some tools, not, not the tools they're using, but it might be easy just to get sucked into those end up spending that much time. Yeah, <laughs> it is easy to get sucked into tools. My goodness. I quickly just calculated it out. Um, you know, 1.7 hours is 102 minutes. So an hour and 42 minutes. I can't think about how I would spend an hour, 42 minutes prepping for a coaching session. And if the difference between an hour, 42 minutes and let's say 20 minutes prepping, or maybe even you get a little bit generous and say 30, you know, that's a whole hour, 62 minutes difference or 72 minutes difference between 30 minute coaching session or a 30 minute preparation time and a 1.7 hour preparation time. Like that hour and change. I have to imagine could be used doing better things. Right. So then uh, Maria, I'm interested to hear when it comes down to how much time they're spending in general, like what does the time breakdown look like? How much time is being spent preparing for coaching? How much time is spent re-coaching on old things that you previously were coaching on versus time that is spent actually doing effective coaching? Like, What does that breakdown look like? So actually doing effective coaching is if we break it down, it's going to look like doing the very first session, which is that 32 minutes, 34 minutes, 39 minutes, actually sitting down and doing that first, that first session. And when we look at the re-coaching, it's that times whatever number of times it takes them to get like however many sessions it actually takes them to implement that skills for the smaller organizations. That's going to be right around two hours or 2.25 hours for the larger organization, it's going to be about 2.8. If you could clarify that, you're saying 2.2 hours are spent prepping in order to get a skill completed or skill learned. And then if a larger organization in order to get a skill properly implemented is 2.8 hours. Correct. Yeah, that doesn't seem so bad because it means for a smaller organization, you know, if it's 2.2 hours, you could essentially do three of those a day or three really, you could change three skills a day and have a break, 
right? And if you have three agents, and let's say that you manage 15, three agents a day, and then have a break, it means that every five days, you're changing some skill. It means that you're able to, in five days, change the skill of every single person on your team. And that seems pretty good that essentially every work week, every person on your team gets better by one skill. Um, and then maybe it's a little bit less effective for large organizations, but that doesn't seem so bad. No. I mean, I think when you break it down that way, not too bad. I think where where it changes is uh, just the the sheer number of times that it's going to take to get to that point. So it's just whether or not you're able to move as quickly with the smaller organizations versus the as it it just takes longer. Because the reality is, I, I think in your example here, like you're meeting with an agent every single day. Is that what you just described? Exactly. I was describing a world where essentially you are well, actually constantly meeting with agents and that out of all the coaching sessions you have per day, two of them work. <laughs> yeah. And I think in the perfect world, that would be amazing. But I think the reality is there's going to be coaching fatigue. There's going to be uh, eight hours in a day. Um, there's going to be other challenges there. But yeah, if we could implement that, that would be, that wouldn't be too bad at all. That's a great point. I was kind of, I was suggesting a 40 hour coaching work week. <laughs> yeah. Which doesn't leave you much time, time for anything else. So Maria, the final question of the podcast, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts because you, you, know, you live it and you are involved in every single department in the organization on the marketing side, the customer success side, even sales, you know, engineering and product. And and so you've seen from many different perspectives inside Balto, you know, how people view the direction of the contact center. And then, of course, you're also talking to managers and you're talking to agents and doing this research. So you know, broadly, what is your thought of what the contact center of 2030 will look like? Yeah, I think and my opinion on this changes, I think, weekly. Uh, so ask me again next week. I'm sure it'll be different. But uh, right now, I think there's definitely more and more of a push towards AI and replacing the human in those interactions and making it more transactional. And more and more, I think there will be that swing. And then I think it's going to end up coming back because, and we may already see it coming back because I don't think that at the end of those calls, anyone is going to be fully there. There's something about a human inter- talking to a human and that end interaction that in, in my mind right now cannot be replaced, whether you're on a sales call, whether you just need help fixing something, whether you need whatever that is, there's something about talking to another human and relating on that, that I don't think we've been able to replace yet. And even coming to the same resolution, it's, you just don't leave the call feeling the same. You don't leave the chat experience feeling the same. So I think there will be a swing one direction. And then I think it's going to come back to, to the human element of it. And that may end up being a differentiator for some companies and we'll see how it goes. But I think that's the way uh, right now that it's going to end up swinging. Maria, I love that. It's funny because you know we ask that question on every episode and no one has described a swing before. You know, Almost the perspective that people tend to bring is like, we are marching full speed ahead toward one end and one end only. And that is 100% robots. And I think that, you know, thinking about it as a pendulum that is going back and forth between, you know, a natural desire to want faster interactions and more automation with 
this almost loss that you feel when you're not having a human involved, I think it's a super interesting way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, I think as a consumer, the number of times that I've had to call, like if I have to call my internet company and get something fixed or, or change uh, my program or, or upgrade something, there is a very different experience for half the time I'm on the phone. Like, please just get me to a person. The robots aren't helping me. Like get me to a person. This is, this is not working. I just want to talk to someone, whether they can fix it or not. I leave with a totally different mindset when I've actually been able to talk to someone, be frustrated. And then again, whether they fixed it or not, I feel better than if I was ignored by a robot. Yeah. Do you notice how IVRs nowadays have started disabling zero to get to an operator? It used to be you can just at any point hit zero and then it goes straight there. <laughs> and now like they just took zero out. So it's like, sorry, we got to You got to keep listening to this. And sometimes they'll even hang up on you. Have you heard that? Where it's like, that's not an option. That's not an option. And the third time it says goodbye. And you're like, oh, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy to me because the fact that they have to prevent you from doing that tells me that a lot of people want this and they're having to put blockers in place to disable you from getting there. And so that's why I think it's going to end up being a shift back. Maria, this was delightful. Thank you so much for your research and all the, the work that you're doing. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for pushing me to mention the most numbers in any podcast I've mentioned, period. All of that has come from you. And I really am just so grateful for everything that you've done. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. This was amazing. All right, Maria. Talk to you soon.